You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK analyst. David, how are you? Giles, I'm well. I'm uh, pleased to hear you're well and I hope all of our listeners are well as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, Indeed. Now, um, just apologies for possibly the change in tone or quality of my um, voice today. Once again, I'm on the road and not married to my um, usual microphone. But anyway, we'll plough on, we shall. Now, look, a couple of things. We've got a really good interview um, today that um, you've done with the chaps behind the generator report card, and we'll explain that a little bit later. But first of all, just want to cover off on a couple of pieces of news that may interest may interest listeners. Um, first one, AGL been very busy this week. Um, not just telling um, its shareholders that one of the units from Loyang A is out for seven months at probably a cost to it of about $100 million at least next next financial year. It's also very interested in buying, spending a, um, well, probably about up to about $4 billion on a telco called Vocus. Now, as long as I've been writing about the energy industry, I've been hearing predictions about the marriage between utilities and telcos, and we haven't really seen it happen. But I guess the fact that AGL is now seriously spending some big coin on it suggests that it may not be so far away, and maybe finally we're getting to the era of um, changing in business models and a new way of thinking about energy, at least for the incumbent utilities. What say you, David? Uh, Giles, I'll say a couple of things about it. Firstly, what goes around comes around. And uh, any other listeners who are as old as me and have followed the AGL for as long as I have will know uh, that back in the days when Len Bleasel was CEO, that's about four CEOs ago, uh, when AGL actually bought a company called Dingo Blue. And they bought a couple of other companies like Transact, which had the fibre optic cable in the ACT as well. Well, Dingo Blue... um, turned out to be a disaster for AGL, uh, so much so that the joke apparently from AGL insiders, uh, and this is a peculiarly Australian and fairly bad taste joke, uh, was that the dingo ate my bonus. Uh, uh, but now... <laughs> go, carry on, go on. <laughs> so so uh, now uh, hopefully Brett and the... Uh, and the corporate memory have, have learnt from that and having to go at focus. But I guess the uh, main message I take from it myself, um, it really is that AGL doesn't see that they can spend that amount of money in the Australian utilities industry and earn the same return on capital. Um, the famous, uh, you know, diversification is the way uh, Philip Lynch used to put it in his One Up on Wall Street books when he was the uh, great manager at Fidelity 20 or 30 years ago. And it's hard for companies to break into new industries, but let's wait and see where that goes. Yeah. Just back on Loyang A, which I just mentioned in passing there, um, the breakdown, which is now extending to seven months, uh, more serious than they thought. I guess this tells us that um, 
the Victorian government's probably really got to get on with doing some reverse auctions to get enough renewables into the systems because if there's not going to be a unit at Loyang A, it's probably going to be a unit at Yulon or even a unit at Loyang B. Um, and it's um, we're running tight on supply in Victoria still. Can't really afford to have one of these units out for over the um, over the hot summer period. Certainly not not through summer and. Um... We, we here at ITK, my colleague Ben Willisey wrote a bit of a note about that, uh, looking at the price implications. We don't think they're that bad just from one unit out, but obviously the risks go up. And it's uh, probably, um, uh, and, and this is the point, I guess, where we have to look at AEMO and its integrated system plan. And we look at the 20 terawatt hours, another eight and a half gigawatts of new supply coming on stream, a fair proportion of which is in Victoria. Uh, and again, it's that usual balancing act that we've been running through three summers now of whether the new supply comes on fast enough to offset uh, uh, the declines that we've seen from uh, thermal generation, which was certainly unreliable last summer. And uh, Giles, so I guess the, you know the, the, we've got this contrast where AEMO has put out these new uh, assumptions for the, for the for the for the IS for the next round of the ISP. Uh, of course, Angus Taylor, our federal minister, hasn't heard anything about them. But have you had a chance to have a look through those assumptions yet? Well, look, yes. I mean, look, it's quite interesting. What's really interesting about what um, AEMO is doing is that they've confirmed that they're going to be entertaining a step change scenario in its new um, ISP. We've written about this a couple of times now. This is really interesting. Some of the scale of emissions reductions um, and renewables penetration that they'll be looking at um, are going to be quite extraordinary, at least in the political context that we find ourselves in Australia, where we sort of say that 26 to 28% emissions reduction is the best that we can possibly do without crashing the economy. I think um, AEMO is being urged by many of the incumbent um, utilities and, um, and, and some of the serious um, energy lobbies to dial in what it means um, to, um, to observe a carbon budget as imposed by the Paris Climate Treaty and the 2 degrees or even the 1.5 degrees scenario. So that could see some serious emissions reductions by um, up to 80% by 2030 um, or maybe it's 2040, I don't know. But it's, um, we haven't actually seen the final numbers there, but it is quite extraordinary. You've, you've got some the serious institutions in the energy market now starting to move along down the road of the energy transition and decarbonisation and how we plan for it. Yet at the political level, we have this extraordinary debate which doesn't seem to recognise anything which is real. Um, it won't accept carbon emissions. It's now talking about nuclear. Angus Taylor even suggested today that may he might, might be in favour if the business model stacks up now, Angus Taylor is smart enough to know that the business model for nuclear won't stand up, but um, we should be smart enough to know that. But um, it just shows that the political debate it just seems to be going in one direction and um, the proper debate's going in the other. Well, you know, I think internationally the news this week is about the UK's plans to, uh, you know, as an island <laughs> uh, kind of grid, although it is connected to, the, to Europe, to be uh, carbon-free as an economy by by um, 2050. So that's uh, where we're all going to be moving. I don't think anyone who takes this podcast seriously will will be in any doubt that that is where the world is going to move towards. And, and no matter what the government of today says, when we come back in 10 years' time, we'll be less uh, carbon intensive than we are today.
Well, let's hope so. David, time to move on to the interview, which um, you've done with uh, Jonathan Dyson from Greenview Strategic Consulting and Paul McArdle from Global Rome. And together, and with others, they have put together one of the most detailed compendiums of the history of the national electricity market, which is about two decades old now. And they've basically looked at each individual generator over that period and come to an interesting set of broad conclusions. We've written one or two stories about it, but you've done the interview. Why did you want to do this? What's the the significance here, David? Well, Paul runs a software company, Global Rome, uh, and I use their software. And uh, I think uh, it's a wonderful piece of software. Absolutely. And, and I, sh- I just should point out, they also provide the data for our very popular NEM watch widgets, which um, very many people go to each day on our website. So, yep, carry on. So, so Global Rome and, and Paul McArdle's are very widely respected. He was involved in the design of the UK market. Uh, he's worked in the USA and he's, you know, he provides one of the foundations that many companies use uh, for their business here in Australia. And equally, um, uh, uh, Jonathan Dyson at Greenview previously worked at, and he's been helping a lot of the new, I think, wind and solar companies into the market here, giving them advice about how to do things properly. Uh, equally, he was previously at AGL, and before that, he was the trader at Luoyang. Uh, so he knows a heck of a lot about electricity pricing, and they've put together this generator report card. Um, and let's listen to their interview now. Uh, but we get into a great discussion uh, about reliability, about the role of uh, policy, about the, uh, how well markets are and aren't working, and where electricity prices might be going. So. It's a little bit technical, some of the discussion, I guess. Uh, but, you know, for those people who are into the topic, like me, uh, you couldn't ask for a better 30 minutes, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Let's have a listen. Uh, Jonathan Dyson and Paul McArdle. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thanks, David. Thanks for having us. And the reason we're having this discussion is that uh, you guys have put together a fairly weighty tome, uh, the Generator Report Card. Um, I guess I'd start out by asking the obvious question, what made you think that uh, this was a good idea? Um, originally, David, we, uh, I guess one of the reasons that we put it together was um, a sense of frustration at, um, at the level of analysis um, and the level of information or misunderstanding of information about what's been happening in the market. Um, so that's what prompted us to do it. Um, seven months on after starting the process, we uh, we wonder ourselves why we did it, but the feedback's been very positive. So that at least is something to note. Absolutely. And uh, I guess, Jonathan, uh, what, what made uh, you think it was a good idea as well. I mean, like what, what, uh, what's you, you've been helping a lot of the new entrants into the market, as I understand it, with with various stuff. Uh, what what were you finding that they needed to learn about that made you, I guess, related to the report card? Yeah, David, it, 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 you're certainly right. We've been helping clients for coming up four years, and. And while it's been fantastic uh, working with those new entrants and, and some incumbents as well, uh, when Paul first started talking to me about this idea of something that was a bit more of a, a line in the sand, I thought uh, that that would be a really uh, useful insight, not just for new entrants, not just for people who've been in for a while, but also for uh, regulators, for 
um, um, the operator of the market uh, with AEMO and so forth. So I, I could really see the value of it. And, and having watched the market for sort of nearly 20 years, um, I, hadn't, I didn't think I'd seen anything kind of what we were talking about. Um, although there's been some brilliant reports over the years, uh, particularly from AMC, AER and AEMO, uh, and some of the independent consultants as well, absolutely. Um, what, uh, what Paul and I were talking through and, and, and discussing made a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, as Paul said, seven months later, it still makes a lot of sense and uh, I'm really happy with uh, where it's ended up. Now, the, you've identified, I think, uh, some 14 themes um, in, uh, that have developed from the work and the generator report card is essentially uh, outlines, I guess, at a simplest level, the revenue and the, and the volume and uh, prices and reliability of every generator in the NEM and then there's aggregate data as well. Um, of those 14 themes, I guess, which, which one, and I'll ask each of you in turn, um, uh, do you see as the simple, as the number one issue over the next three years for, for the market to address or for people to think about? Uh, David, the key issue for me, uh, and I guess from a Greenview point of view, is that whilst we're doing a lot of work with uh, wind and solar uh, participants, there's still a, a big element, uh, a big chunk, if you like, of production in our NEM that is coming from thermal generation. And so uh, whilst uh, it's important to know where we're heading, uh, it's also really important to know uh, what's going on right now. So I think um, I was a little bit surprised at how, uh, how much you know, 48 operational uh, thermal units in the power station and 75% of the generation over the, uh, over the, over the uh, 2008 calendar year is still coming from them. So whilst we, uh, a lot, we have a desire to move towards a, uh, a cleaner, more, um, more sustainable uh, future, we've got to be cognizant of where things are at right now as well. And Paul? So from... From our perspective, I guess, we're, so just for the audience that don't know, we're a software company that operates in the market. We're not consultants. Um, we don't get involved in consulting work or even bespoke IT development, really. Um, so from our point of view, the number one insight we came away with this with was um, how difficult it was to do. Um, and if I can just explain a bit more, the um, the AMO's MMS database is set up and structured really for real-time operations in the market. There is no central data repository that provides for um, in-depth long-term analysis of the like that we've done in the report card. So a fair amount of the thousands of hours that we've invested in the process has been about transforming the MMS database into something that's actually useful from an analytical point of view. Um, because our view is if you don't understand where we've come from and what the data is actually telling you, then we've got very little chance of actually making the transition succeed. And I guess, Paul, uh, that's particularly, however, uh, true that is for the, uh, in front of the meter, the big generation units, it's even more true for the new big sector and fastest growing sector of the market, which is the behind the meter sector. 
never mind that we don't even know, uh, we don't have any way of looking at how many behind the meter uh, batteries and things there are. What's your feeling about that? Uh, well, uh, uh, David, thanks. It's a very good question. We, um, apart from one chart in the whole of the report, we, um, we didn't touch distributed energy resources at all. So in 530 pages, we didn't we didn't touch distributed energy resources and we also didn't deal much at all with data that came from the clean energy regulator. Um, now in terms of distributed energy resources, you're quite right that no one really understands how much storage is um, behind the meter in the market. We spent, we invested quite a lot of time working with the Smart Energy Council um, in putting together a um, energy storage register in parallel with the COAG process that was running at the time um, as one way of trying to provide visibility in the market. Now COAG went ahead and make it, um, had the AMC made a different rule that means the AMO is picking up that process now but it's a very necessary step in the market. Um, even in more simple terms, so that's about batteries right, but even in more simple terms understanding the contribution of solar PV um, on rooftops is not as easy as, um, as it might seem. And one of the reasons that we didn't do much with, um, with solar PV data is because there's two sources of estimates at the moment, one from the APVI and one from the AMO, um, and they're quite different. And we don't know which one to believe. Um, and we know the APVI methodology has changed uh, a number of times over the years, so we don't have much faith in the long-term, the, the usefulness of the data for long-term trending at this Good. point. Okay, well, so I guess uh, that I think conveys to, to our listeners the amount of effort and seriousness and difficulty it is on, on which a lot of the sort of, uh, <laughs> that underlies a lot of the sort of casual empiricism that uh, the likes of me are just sort of um, uh, throw out there as, as if it was received wisdom. But <laughs> uh, I guess um, let's talk about something that's fairly topical right now, and that is reliability of the thermal generation fleet. And I'm going to focus on the coal generation fleet. I guess um, AEMO has uh, made a point of saying that they thought the thermal generation fleet was becoming less reliable. And there are various ways and definitions we can think about reliability, and you've looked at a few in this report. Um, um, and of course, it's a natural thing to think because the plants are getting old and maybe having to ramp up and down more. And I guess also AGL has made no secret of the fact that it doesn't think Liddell's a particularly reliable unit and there aren't that many units left. So. What did the report card show uh, in terms of the reliability of the coal generation fleet? Okay, good question, David. Um, so let's unpick that for a bit. Um, let's start by saying that the word reliability is more typically used to describe a system rather than a particular um, generation resource, like a coal unit or a, um, any other type of unit for that matter. Um, when we look at um, metrics to describe um, how a particular unit is performing over time, 
you more typically look at things like its avail level of availability, which we've done on a volumetric basis over time. So if we exclude Calide A unit, unit 4, which is um, still technically registered at the AMO, but in the process of being decommissioned and hasn't really run for years, um, apart from an oxy firing test, there are 48 um, dispatchable coal units still operating in the NEM. If we trend the level of um, availability over time um, on a volumetric basis, um, then we actually find that the level um, of unavailability, so the volume um, compared to its uh, register capacity that was not available in the market every month of the year, that's actually declined um, in more recent years, um, i.e. The generators have become more available over time compared to uh, about 10 years ago, say. Um, now there has been a slight increase in unavailability um, over time in more recent years compared to, uh, compared to about five years ago. We unpicked that by looking at whether the unit was fully unavailable, so offline for a number of reasons, or whether the unit was available but not at its registered capacity. Um, and it turns out that over time, the level of partial unavailability has been increasing fairly linearly year on year, but the level of full unavailability has been pretty steady. Um, essentially over the last 20 years, accounting for commissioning of some of the units. So, so I, I guess the, and I think some of the other, even if we use AEMO's recent definition of a, a forced outage or unexpected trip, being, you know, two five minute intervals where it didn't dispatch after it was just before, you still come to much the same conclusion that, I guess AEMO has a data and graph that showed something and your uh, longer term time series showed a different thing. So I, I, I guess it's still um, yet to show up is what I would conclude in the, in, in the bigger picture data that reliability of the coal fleet is declining. But nevertheless, uh, Jonathan, I'm going to turn to you and, uh, and ask a slightly different, well, a completely different question, <laughs> uh, which relates to a couple of the other themes. And it is a subject dear to my heart, electricity prices. And you know, I guess um, we, we talk about service two, keeping the lights on, which is a sort of synonym for dispatchable power as opposed to uh, the variable kind. We've obviously seen a big increase in bidding bans across the NEM in recent years. I mean, if simple economists would just say that was just due to a tightness between supply and demand on average that wasn't, wasn't there a few years ago, um, what, would, what would you say about the, how would, what did you find about prices in, in the generator report card? And when you think about the market going forward, how, how, how do you think about that? And what do you tell your clients? <laughs> That's an, a really easy question to uh, answer, David. The <laughs> it's not really. Probably the the key thing for me is uh, there is definitely been significant change in the pricing of uh, all um, of the assets in in the NEM, and that that pricing is continuing to change. And so, 
even this concept of a baseload generator, um, I think is starting to very quickly deteriorate and, and, and almost to the point where that term just kind of means nothing. So we, we, very, uh, we, we haven't really used that term throughout the report card for that very reason. So the pricing mechanisms, people are pricing not just on this, uh, the, this term short or a marginal cost, they're also trying to think a lot more strategically um, about uh, their fuel costs, their opportunity costs and so forth. And we could see that trend um, starting to really appear in the later years of 16, 17, 18, as we saw Northern Power Station shutting down in South Australia, as we saw Hazelwood shutting down in 2017, the market was changing uh, around everyone, uh, not just the thermal generators, and we were seeing responses uh, in the market uh, to that. And so we have a number of charts that show regionally and even across the NEM how we have seen a, an increase in the generate or the, uh, the amount of volume offered below zero dollars, uh, and a lot of that is coming from uh, the, renew the new renewable new entrants, but it's also coming from the incumbents as they start to react and modify. But we're also seeing a, a great, a much larger increase in the amount of energy that's priced above three hundred dollars, and that was quite surprising. And some of the, absolutely some of that is coming from the gas and the hydro, but also some of the thermal uh, generation as well. What we're seeing is a, is a, almost a disappearing of the energy price between zero dollars and and three hundred dollars. What we called the green bands. Um, which uh, 10 years ago was quite prominent uh, across each of the regions and progressively has changed. So we, we've ended up with a lot of energy priced below zero and a lot of energy uh, priced above 300. And so as, a, as, as an observer of the market and as a, as a trader, you sit there and you go, well, hang on, we're going to be either really low or we're going to be really high and we're going to be bouncing between it. And I can take the dispatch outcomes in Victoria this morning. Now, there was a few constraints kicking around. It was $0 uh, around 6 o'clock this morning. Um, within 30 minutes, the price was up to $90. And I think that's quite a, a really good example of how quickly things are going to move and change. And I can remember back 10 years ago trading at Loyang, you wouldn't have seen a zero to $90 change in 20 minutes without massive uh, generator outages and, and so forth. This was just normal pricing market mechanisms. Um, there was a couple of network constraints around and so things were bouncing around a little bit. But that's a, that's a really good example that we're starting to see this lots of energy up high, lots of energy down low and, and, and the repercussions of that. And that's the system and that's, the, that's everyone reacting to what's going on, not just one or two types of uh, participants or fuel types uh, in our NEM. Yeah, uh, and I guess, you know, being an analyst, a financial analyst, <laughs> I love talking about price and volume and supply and demand. And I guess looking forward, um, what I see is that there's another 10% of wind and solar essentially coming online uh, to say the end of 2020 or mid to 2020, another 20 terawatt hours or even another 25 terawatt hours. And I'm no, I've no doubt there'll be more announcements between now and then. I guess, do you expect this um, volatility in the price and, and the hollowing out in the middle to would you expect it to get worse or, or better uh, as a result of that? And, and after I finish asking that question, I'm going to come on to another one uh, about what this means for 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 incentive incentivizing new supply. But let's just deal with the impact of the of the of, of what we can see first of all. Yeah. So um, so that's another good question, David. It for both John and I, we're. Um, pretty united in the view that the level of volatility in the market's going to increase in future. 
Um, and you've mentioned one factor, which is the influx of um, new, uh, new entrant wind and solar as a result of building out the RET. But the second factor is um, five-minute settlement coming in 1st of July 2021, um, which guaranteed will drive volatility through the roof. Um, what it does to average price outcomes, a little more uncertain, but my money would be on them going up. Um, so we, uh, we basically are seeing the start of a, a long-term change where the price will more and more bounce between zero and $300 with small changes in demand or small changes in generation output, etc. And, and uh, you know, one of the big six questions in this is that if we accept that that new next 20, 20 terawatt hours, next 10% of, of supply energy wise is, is actually going to get dispatched because it bids in at zero or less than zero, it by definition means that without further growth in demand, which is not obvious at the moment, um, after backing out rooftop, <laughs> um, um, that there'll be less market share availability for the thermal generators. Uh, is that right? Well, certainly, that's a, it's a good hypothesis, and I think we're going to potentially see that. That makes sense, and we've seen that around the world in other markets as well. I think the piece that probably jumped out a little bit more to us as we were going through uh, this this analytical piece is that in fact it, uh, the hydro and the gas generation their uh, effective market share the amount of generation that they're supplying to the market that was changing as well and so if that's the case then in fact we're going to start to see a lot of pressure on their margins and their their business models and, and I think we conclude that in the report as well that yes there will be thermal there will be pressure on the thermal generation business model but there'll also be pressure on the hydro and gas-fired generation model going forward. Yeah, I, I see that. It's always gas which has the highest marginal cost. Uh, and then it's a question of whether, uh, you know, how close to that coal can bid up. But maybe that's a more specialised topic for another time. I want to move on to the um, what I think is the important question then, because I think that uh, there still remains a, 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 a consensus view that the thermal power stations, are, a lot of them are going to go away over the next 15 years. Um, and, and, and they've announced that more or less. Uh, and it may be that market forces dictate that some of them close earlier rather than later. Again, that's where I would put my money. What I want to ask is, is the NEM gross pool going to provide the right level of price signals to ensure that we continue to have and we can turn the lights on? Uh, very good question, and we asked that ourselves in the um, in the report. So some of our some of your listeners will um, will be familiar with the uh, instantaneous reserve plant margin, which is a metric that we introduced into our NEMWatch software ten years ago or so. Um, we um, transformed that a little in the report card and called it a dispatchable reserve margin. And essentially, it's the excess of available supply over demand. So when supply, when the supply-demand balance is tight, the dispatchable reserve margin is low. Um, it's traditionally used as a measure in longer-term planning studies, where 
Um, a DRM below 15% would signal very tight supply and demand. What we saw looking at the last 10 years, I think, um, of correlation of price outcomes, so volume-weighted price outcomes across the NEM and NEM-wide dispatchable reserve margin um, outcomes for every dispatch interval in a year, um, is that, say, you know, 10, 9, 8 years ago, there was a good correlation between low DRM and high price. So when supply demand was tight, um, prices were high, which is what you'd expect, what you need in an energy-only market in order to incentivise new capacity. Um, the DRM problem alleviated itself for a few years um, until Northern and Hazelwood closed, essentially. Um, and we're now back in a situation where DRM is low again at times when demand is high um, and so on. Now, what we saw in 16, 17 and 18 was that when DRM was low, prices didn't spike above $300 much of the time at all. Um, which is quite concerning if you think that the energy only market is supposed to incentivise new dispatchable capacity. So that, that means in other words, when it did spike, um, it was spiking at times when the NEMWide DRM was not as low um, as the lowest points in the year. Yeah, and so I guess I ask myself, is there a role, I mean, another thing uh, a big question is whose job is it to ensure that the lights are on uh, and I'm using that as that you know just lights on as a, a synonym uh, for reliability um, if we look at the way I guess the energy security board has approached it they've uh, essentially made it the job of the in individual participants in the market Whereas I kind of think it should be a portfolio approach and it's really AEMO's job to ensure uh, that there's enough reliability dispatchable generation and that, you know, as we build out the wind and solar, which is quite clearly the lowest cost, and I, I fully get the point about cost doesn't equal value, but, uh, but it, still it's the lowest cost and therefore well suited to the role of providing energy and, and working out how much dispatchable generation is needed and making sure it's there. Maybe that's a job for the system and not a job for individual retailers or generators. Yeah, David, I think you're right. The um, energy plays an important role. And when you look at it across a, a, a week, month, a year, etc., energy and, and average pricing and all this sort of, uh, of all these sort of factors are all very important. They're critical to what happens over the medium and long term. But when you start talking about um, uh, system security and reliability um, type uh, aspects, you do have to start to come down to, well, hang on, we've got a demand that needs to be met and we have a, uh, a generation fleet that we need to supply that demand with. And so if we're not going to supply that, then obviously we're going to have to intervene in some way, shape or form. And this is obviously where uh, um, um, uh, all sorts of things like RERT and um, demand side bidding and demand side response and so forth start to, to come in. All of that is trying to manage that uh, demand 
and supply balance that's there. And I think that makes it one of the real big challenges in any electricity market around the world uh, is that continual battle, of, if you like, of demand equaling supply and always making sure that we're, we've got a system that can actually handle uh, that can handle uh, what's going on at that time. And, and that may be it. Um, a cloudy time it may be a high wind it may be a low wind it may be a really fast rate of change wind it may be uh, massive rainstorms affecting coal supply in a particular region which we've seen over the years as well and I think that whole uh, perspective about understanding in your electricity market where the supply is coming from and, and all the factors that affect it because no fuel supply type is 100% reliable is 100% base load all of these sort of concepts, that's the sort of stuff we wanted to try and uh, convey um, through the pictures, I guess, that we've put through the report card to show that it's more than just megawatts as well. You know, you've got to understand security. You've got to understand some of the reasons why AMO was intervening. Um, these were questions that were being asked of me as a consultant and Paul as a, as a software provider. And so we went through and mapped out why is it that AMO has intervened for nearly 25% of the time last year? Right, well, when we went through and mapped in the inertia, uh, we took every single inertia value and we started to see that mapped out in particularly regions like South Australia. We could really see why um, through 2015, 16, 17, things were, were quite uh, strained across the South Australian system. And we could see that coming out in the charts and we've been able to uh, put that through the report, which I think adds a lot of value to it. It's not just AEMO trying to be difficult for people. There's some genuine physical plant and system reasons why we need to do some things the way that we do. David, yes. can, uh, go on, go can, on. Yeah, can I just also add in there that um, in, uh, establishing a market design that provides um, good incentives for new supply capacity to enter the market is not an easy market design challenge. It's one that market operators have grappled with, I know, for at least 20 years. Um, and the reason I know is because I was involved, um, I worked with the electricity pool in the UK um, back in 1997, back at the start when they worked with Nordpool and the VPX to establish the Association of Power Exchanges. And when I worked with them, they had me compare the way markets worked around the world and establish um, it was at the time five key issues that market operators around the world grappled with. Um, now, surprising, it's not really surprising, um, but it's nice to know that the, ten, the five key issues that the, they were grappling with 20 years ago are essentially the same issues that we're grappling with today. One of them was um, ensuring a market design incentivizes uh, new generation capacity um, as um, and where it's needed. Now, one of the, you mentioned service one and service two before, just for, um, for listeners, we have used those synonyms to describe the two different types of um, assets that are being um, added or considered to be added to, uh, to the generation mix. Um, service one being anytime, anywhere energy and service two being the stuff that's all to do with keeping the lights on, which is not just, we're not just meaning in the real time, but also providing um, firm enough capacity that it can be um, taken account of in the AMO's um, ST and MT passer planning processes, for instance. Um, and 
the way in which um, the market has been structured to incentivise Service 1 may indeed be disincentivising supply of Service 2, which is the concern. So I, I think the market will uh, give you an answer. I'm just not sure that there won't be a few blackouts along the way. And in the end, I mean, individual participants uh, mostly don't care about, in some sense, about blackouts. I mean, it, it may make prices higher and, you know, actually reward them. And so there's, in my view, there's an, a separate job for the system. But look, and I don't want to talk about MLFs. I don't want to talk about uh, um, uh, uh, a couple of other th topics that are sort of just... I think too controversial in a sense at the moment. Um, I guess I and we're going to run out of time shortly on a topic that we could spend a day on, not not you know thirty five minutes on. Uh, but I, um, so I'm going to ask two more questions. One uh, one the first one is five minute settlement. Um, it's coming in. Uh, do you think it's going to advantage or disadvantage a particular? fuel class um, going for as we stand today? So maybe I'll take that uh, uh, question first, David. I've, uh, in numerous discussions with both clients and uh, regulators and um, anyone who will listen actually, um, the, the first thing um, I guess I want, uh, I, I think I'll observe as we move into this five minute settlement is it changes things. And it changes things in quite a dramatic way. And some people are thinking about how those changes uh, uh, are going to occur. And some people are, um, are kind of hoping that it changes in particular ways. The, the, the example that I uh, sat down with the AMC and talked through um, at one stage was when a, uh, when a spike occurs now, we often see a lot of generation piling in to, to then capture, if you like, the value of that price spike. And then that additional generation is coming in and uh, away it goes. So obviously that will change in a future market. So uh, what we will see is a price spike will occur. The nature of the price means that uh, only those assets that are either on and operating and have capability to move up will be able to move up those assets that have higher ramp rates, uh, such as batteries, will be able to move up. They could effectively be off, but they could move up to their targets and, and capture some of that value as per then their dispatch instruction from AEMO, uh, as always. Um, and, and, and away it goes. The, the challenge, though, from a trading perspective is if you were a gas-fired generator in particular and that price spikes occurred, you've got no certainty as to whether the next one's going to occur. So in terms of the dispatch decisions and the bids and, and, and so forth, will you actually start to turn your plant on? Will you allow it to be turned on via the dispatch process, etc.? This changes. Now, I'm not necessarily saying it's, it's, it's all bad and they're never going to turn on or anything like that. What it means is that it's going to quite dramatically change what happens, certainly when price spikes occur. Now, I understand uh, a lot of the desire around wanting to curb some of the behaviour that has been occurring in the past, and, and, and I'm absolutely aware of uh, you know, the significant ramifications and the financial implications that occurred to, to participants when uh, we have late rebidding, uh, when we have um, trips in half hour and, and so forth, and, and some of the the dynamics that occur in a half hour. Certainly aware of all that. Um, I think some of those behaviours are obviously going to be um, ironed out with something like a 530, with the 530 rule change. 
it's going to create other changes and some of those other changes will add to the volatility. It's not all just going to remove volatility. And so that is something that everyone's going to have to be very acutely aware of. And what it might mean is we actually have a lot more plants starting to respond to price spikes in anticipation thereof and then they subsequently don't occur. Again, the financial outcomes will be that we'll have a lot more people potentially turning on uh, if they are particularly thermal fleet. Uh, rather than um, waiting for those price spikes to occur. Either way, things are changing. So, so I'm going to have to give the last word to Paul because we're definitely running out of, out of time. And so, Paul, I guess what that's going to mean is there's going to be a, a big demand for the ability to, however badly, look at prices forward, uh, you know, in, in the next 30 minutes sort of thing, much more closely than in the past, and that seems to be something that uh, that software and analysis uh, and modelling could be good at. Correct. Um, so we're we're certainly um, investing hundreds of thousands of dollars um, just in our small software company to gear up for five minute settlement. Um, now it's important to understand. John was um, talking about price spikes and the impact of five minute settlement, but it's also important, you know, it may be particularly important for Renew Economy listeners to be aware that the same sort of dynamic will occur in reverse for negative prices as well. So we've already identified cases where participants, um, so new entrants in the market maybe haven't done things exactly the way we think they might or should have, um, in that they've got a dispatch target from the AMO to uh, to maintain output at a certain level, the price has dropped to minus 1,000, despite the fact that they've bid in volume at minus 1,000, they've, uh, they've tripped the unit. So we wonder whether that sort of behaviour will increase in future with more lower price generation coming into the mix and a move to five-minute settlement where they're aware a higher cost in the five minute than would otherwise be the case. My experience is that it's an inner market. If you put enough smart people in it and there's plenty in this business, uh, if there's a way to game the system, uh, people will find it. Guys, we've, uh, we've got to uh, wind it up there. I want to thank you. As I say, we could have gone on with this discussion for a long time. Um, it's a specialised discussion, but one of great interest to me. Fantastic to have you guys uh, both on the show, and I wish you all the luck, which I'm sure you won't really need with the generator report card. Thanks, uh, thanks again to Paul uh, McArdle and Jonathan Dyson. Thanks, David. Thanks, thanks David. And that was Paul McArdle from Global Rome and Jonathan Dyson from Greenview Strategic Consulting. And um, that, um, that's a, a very hefty document, I've got to say. It's about 500 pages. It's sitting on my desk um, back in the office. And, uh... 650 pages, 650 pages. Oh, I and uh, look, it's a great document. And it's got many uses, uh, one of which is uh, if you keep it by your bed, not by your table, because, uh, um, you know, if in doubt, <laughs> you can uh, use it to go to sleep with as well. <laughs> very good. Look, I'm going to take this opportunity to wrap this up now. I'm going to thank our sponsors, uh, Solaray Energy and Watt Watchers. Um, and what's that going to sort of uh, flag? We're getting together. We're going over to Perth next week, David. We're going to be speaking at the Energy and Minds Conference, which is going to be quite interesting. And we're doing what's called a live podcast, so basically a panel with um, three, um, four other speakers. And um, so that will be our podcast um, here a fortnight, I think, will be um, up on the... Um, 
up on the uh, up on the website. But I do look forward to um, the visit to Perth and catching up with people there and some uh, very interesting things happening there. Uh, I think WA is actually emerging as one of the um, very interesting transition points because it is a reasonably big grid, but it is an isolated grid and it's got a bucket load of solar coming down. Well, it's already there and more's coming down the line. So um, an interesting challenge for the market operators, but a great opportunity to um, put together the sort of transition to a high um, variable renewable grid. So um, looking forward to that very much. Yes, yes, Charles. And before that, we've got the Australian uh, Energy Conference uh, here in Sydney. Uh, energy storage conference, uh, I mean. I won't say any more about that. If you don't know about that, uh, get along down to the Trade Centre tomorrow um, and you can listen to a lot of great sessions there as well. Good stuff. Well, thanks very much, David. Thanks very much, listeners. And we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by SolarRay Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.